Welcome back, everybody, to this Three Rivers talk show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting on the baseball side of things, and it's honestly starting to sound a bit like a broken record, but to the surprise of absolutely nobody, we have reached the deadline day that Major League Baseball put into place in order to not have regular season games be postponed. We have came to that date. An agreement has not been reached. It would take more than a miracle at this point if they get it done by tonight. And now at this point, games are going to start to be canceled. For every day that a deal doesn't get done, that's one game that gets taken off of the schedule. So, for instance, if they have to go in and negotiate tomorrow, opening day, that first game, canceled. If they have to go in Wednesday, the second game of that first series is canceled. Thursday, the entire first series is canceled. And you're losing games like that in the blink of an eye. And it's unfortunate because... As I've said before, it's the fans who are losing out. The owners, the players, obviously, they're going to lose money. But both of them are just as responsible. The players are just as bad as the owners. Neither side wants to compromise. Neither side appears interested in getting a deal done, despite what all of them claim. And we're at a point now where if this deal doesn't get done today, you're going to be start having to start looking at prorated salaries. And if any of you are familiar with how the 2020 season got restarted, first of all, it was a nightmare. Not as big of a nightmare as this, but it was pretty ugly. And the reason why is because they went to a shortened season. The owners had one idea in place with how much they wanted to pay the players for the number of games that they were going to play. The players had another number in mind. And the Major League Baseball, Rob Manfred, was able to unilaterally put in the plan he wanted because of the CBA that was under contract at that point. And as I've said before, we don't have that option now. But it was a disaster, something that should have been and could have been very much avoided. It wasn't. It led to less baseball being played than what arguably could have been. And now we're going to be running into that same scenario where as games continue to get postponed, the players are going to have one idea for how much they should get paid, even if it's a 140-game season. The players are going to have an idea at that point. They probably argue that they should get paid their full salary. But the owners are going to argue that they didn't play 20 games, so that that percentage should come out of their deal. And... It's basically the idea of going back to the same thing we dealt with in 2020 with 
arguing about the money. I mean, the CBA, a lot of it now is arguing about the money. But then you got to negotiate how much the players are going to be paid themselves. Not just anything associated with the CBA, whether it be a luxury tax, whether it be minimum pay, none of that. It's looking at specific player salaries and what they are going to make each season or this upcoming season for each player because it doesn't matter how many games that are going to be played, how many games are canceled. The two sides are going to have different numbers that they want. They're going to have different opinions on how many games that they should play. Of course, the league is going to want to play as many games as possible. The players, I don't know what they're going to do. They may have that same mentality of wanting to play as many games as possible. But on the flip side, they may say that they want extra time to warm up for the season, basically spring training. So they may lose more games because they want that extra time to prepare and not deal with what we dealt with in 2020 with the record number of injuries that we had in that short of a season. And honestly, as I've said before, baseball is just digging themselves into a bigger hole. The longer this lockout goes on, the longer that baseball doesn't continue to be played at the professional level, it's going to drive more people away and it's going to cause less interest in the game of baseball. I mean, there are so many young baseball players that can talk about the biggest stars of the NFL, of the NBA, even the NHL. But baseball does not do a good job of marketing its top players. That, in turn, is another reason why baseball is continuing to be dying off amongst younger generations. And it's honestly worse than what we saw in 1994 with the strike. The players went on strike because they wanted more money. While we don't even have a CBA in place for them to strike against, it's the same scenario because baseball isn't being played. And it drove a lot of fans away then in 94 and even into 95 because they didn't want to deal with the players and the owners going back and forth, just like it is now. Neither side wanted to compromise. Now, for myself personally, I wasn't alive to live through the 94 strike, so I can't say a whole lot about how that was. But what I can say is that the tensions between the players and the owners has gotten worse since that 94 strike, many of the owners that are in place now, it may not have been themselves directly who was the main owner of the team, but they could have easily had shares of the ownership, may have been a minority owner, or they could have had the team in their family line and their father or their uncle 
were the ones who were in charge of the team. And then between 94 and now, it got passed down to them. So many of the characteristics of this lockout are similar to the 94 strike. And there are many fans who remember the 94 strike. And they stuck around because baseball was going to come back. And now, at this point, there's no guarantee that baseball is going to come back. The last time whenever the strike happened, Major League Baseball could have basically turned around and refilled the rosters with other players to make money. That can't happen this time because the CBA isn't in place. So then they would have to basically start from scratch and negotiate again with the new players. So they're not even going to go there. But the point is, is that really at this point, baseball is just embarrassing themselves. And the longer this goes on, baseball is going to continue to be the laughing stock of American professional sports. It's a harsh reality, but it is the true reality. I mean, people are already sick and tired, including myself, of hearing that the sides went to a meeting, it lasted 10 minutes, and then the proposal was done, they ended discussions, and they moved on. And that's sad. It cannot end like that. It cannot be that way. And as I've said numerous times before, they took way too long to try and start these daily negotiations multiple times a day. And unfortunately now, games are going to be canceled. It's a situation that they really put themselves into at their own fault. And again, neither side wants to give up more than what the other does. I totally understand that. But at the same time, you have to be able to put your differences aside and figure out what is best for the game and what is best for each of the sides. And regardless of what happens with this CBA, it's still going to be the most player-friendly CBA that exists. Look at the CBA for the NFL. Look at it for the NHL or the NBA. None of those leagues get the same benefits that the MLB CBA had, even in the last one. And that just goes to show the state of baseball now, and really they're arguing over nothing. We're going to step aside here briefly on the Three Rivers Talk Show. We'll be back in just a few minutes for more regarding the Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I'm joined now to discuss the Pittsburgh Steelers and their offseason by ESPN radio host Stan Saverin. Stan, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to do this this afternoon. Hey, Drew, it's my pleasure to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So, looking back at really what has transpired in terms of media sessions with General Manager Kevin Colbert. He mentioned the other day that the team plans to enter training camp with four quarterbacks. And at this point, Mason Rudolph, Dwayne Haskins are expected to be two of those four. And really, there's a lot of approaches that they can take in terms of bringing in those other two quarterbacks. So I wanted to get your thoughts on how you see all of this playing out as they head into training camp. Well, it's interesting uh, when you talk about their plans. Uh, so much, obviously, will be determined by the draft. But free agency is likely to play a bigger role. Uh, it always does. What they do in March will certainly impact what they end up doing at the draft in April. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that they'll draft a quarterback, primarily because I don't think uh, one of the two that they like is going to be available to them. And frankly, I think that would be a, a bad move. Not that they won't need eventual replacement. Uh, for, for Ben, but I don't think this is the year to look for it. I think they've got so many holes elsewhere that they've got to concentrate on that. That having been said, one of the other ways to solve the issue would be to look for a free agent quarterback. Uh, not somebody like Aaron Rodgers. That's not going to happen. Russell Wilson, that's not going to happen. But guys who are in their second contract, um, they apparently have interest in a guy like Mitch Trubisky. They have interest in a guy like Jameis Winston. Uh, maybe less so Teddy Bridgewater, um, if they're looking to bridge the gap. Uh, the question becomes, how much does it cost you salary-wise to bring in, let's say, a Mitch Trubisky, and how much draft capital would it cost to bring anyone in? Well, the good thing about Winston, Bridgewater, and Trubisky, they're unrestricted free agents, so you don't have to trade for them. They're there for the taking. But with a limited quarterback market available in the draft, that means there's going to be a lot of teams looking for, let's say, Trubisky. Uh, this year, he had a very low contract in Buffalo, but you can bet you're probably looking at six, seven million dollars a year. So you're you're making an expenditure. Uh, again, uh, I believe that they're a team. They will never say the word. I think they're if not in rebuild, they're in sort of a remodeling mode, Drew. Mm -hmm. And I think that while quarterback might be your most important position on the team. I think it's much more important to build your offensive line, your defensive line, your inside linebacker. Uh, I've always believed this. If you were building a skyscraper, you wouldn't start with the top floor. You'd start with the foundation. And I think, frankly, that's the way that would go. But that having been said, I think that you'll have Haskins. You'll have Rudolph. Um, you'll have, most likely, a veteran quarterback like the ones we've named. And, again, if they're going to spend that kind of money, you can bet, unless he's a total flop, He'll be the starter, at which case they could then turn around and trade Rudolph. Uh, someone will need a backup and get rid of his $3.5 million hit. They could always try to re-sign Josh Dobbs as the third guy or the fourth guy. And so let's say they sign Trubisky. Now Haskins moves up to number two. You trade Rudolph, and you have Dobbs as your number three. So I was going to actually bring up Josh Dobbs because – he's really been kind of left out of all these conversations. And I know the, the team, they really enjoyed him in the role this past season when they put him on injured reserve 
because of his turf toe in training camp. They were able to have him on the sidelines to help Ben. But does the organization, from what you're hearing, even see him as a realistic option for competing for this position? Or is it going to be something going forward like what we saw this past season where they just use him on the sidelines almost as like an assistant quarterback's coach, if you will? Yeah, I don't think that they look at him uh, as anything more than a spare part. And maybe that's not fair. I mean, he really didn't get much of an opportunity. Um, you know, here I remember he came in and completed a 22-yard pass, but then he became Josh, then became Josh Dobbs. Uh, he's a smart guy to have on your team. He's very well liked with his teammates. But I don't think that they view him um, as a realistic option, certainly not as a starter and maybe not even as a backup. Uh, as a number three, you know, maybe. Um, a guy, I think if he wanted to, if he's not, you know, designing, you know, spaceships or whatever, might be a good coach Apologize there for the technical difficulties. We'll be working to get Stan Savin back here on the air or step away for the time being until we can get him back. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show currently on BBN Online Radio. We thank you for your cooperation in our technology difficulties. Here now still with Stan Saverin. We're just going to pick up right where we left off. In regards to the names you mentioned, you know, Mitch Trubisky, Jameis Winston, how much of an upgrade are they in comparison to your internal options right now in Mason Rudolph and Dwayne Haskins? Well, we don't know uh, everything we need to know about Mason Rudolph. I mean, he started some games. He's shown some flashes, uh, but the flashes have been both good and bad. Um, You know, he began to show something the year Ben was out in 19. um, Then the Miles Garrett situation set him back. Uh, I do thought uh, when he came back from that, and he had to get yanked from that because it clearly uh, had affected him. Uh, But in that game where they were playing the Jets, they were trailing. They pulled Duck Hodges and put Mason in. He was driving him down the field, and I think they would have won that game, but... He hurt his shoulder, and that was it for the season. Um, he's, er- he's erratic. Uh, I mean, I don't harbor visions of him being, frankly, a winning quarterback in the NFL. Um, but, you know, we just don't know. I'm thinking about that game he started against Detroit uh, when, when Ben was out with COVID, and I'll never get uh, the image of him throwing a ground ball to Ray Ray McLeod wide open in the end zone. They ended up tying that game. Didn't cost a playoff spot, but still, uh, under pressure, he wasn't very good. Um, Haskins, I think, frankly, is more intriguing. Uh, we know next to nothing about him, but he was the 15th overall pick in the draft. That doesn't mean anything. Guys have been drafted higher than him and big, big bust-outs. Uh, Josh Rosen, uh, Ryan Leaf, so there's precedent for that. But he did have a good camp. Um, he went to D.C., a 15th overall selection, uh, highly touted out of Ohio State, led the nation in touchdown passes, uh, but he was immature as a person let alone a football player, and also he was playing in his hometown. He's from D.C., a lot of pressure. You know, maybe, uh, you know, a couple of years later, he's matured. Uh, I'd like to see what he can do. I don't think that either of them is as accomplished as, say, a Trubisky. Trubisky, people look their, down their nose at him, but the Bears, you know, traded up to get him. Um, they passed on Pat Mahomes, by the way. I'm sure they regret that. But, I mean, Trubisky did lead the Bears to the playoffs twice, and they're not great offensive teams. So, um, depending on the cost, uh, I, I would rather see Trubisky than the other two. Um, and if Trubisky were to come here and win the job, 
then you probably could trade Mason Rudolph, have Haskins as your backup, and save yourself $3 million in cap space. So um, if it comes to having Rudolph or Haskins, I'm fine with that because I don't think the Steelers are a playoff team, even with Trubisky, frankly. So then you had also mentioned in regards to the draft, the two guys that they're looking for, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're referring to at that point either Matt Corral or Kenny Pickett. No, um, well, mm-hmm. perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they really like this uh, Marie, uh, Malik Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, I think that the mobility factor comes in. Uh, Drew, I cover the Mike Tomlin press conference every week, mm-hmm. and even when not asked directly, he has constantly mentioned that mobility with a quarterback has come into play in the NFL. Not the me talking to Lamar Jackson, but he's talking about a guy who can move in the pocket. Now, Kenny Pickett can do that. Willis is a guy who not only can do that, but he can also run. Mm-hmm. And he's a better thrower than, let's say, uh, a Lamar Jackson or even a Kyler Murray. Um, my sources tell me they really like Willis. But Willis had a really strong senior bowl We'll see what he does in the combine. If he has a really good, impressive combine, he's going to move up the draft board. Most people think Kenny Pickett will go top 10, 11, whatever, um, and that Willis won't be far behind. Um, and they just don't have the draft capital to trade up to get him. But uh, from all accounts, they really like Malik Willis. So then hypothetically, even if they had that draft capital, would they be – would they make that split-second decision to go ahead and trade up to get him, knowing that the last time they traded up it was for Devin Bush, and he's been in regression as a result of his ACL? Well, they've also, in the past, traded up to get Troy Polamalu. Mm-hmm. So would anybody complain about <laughs> that move? And they traded up even more spots. They traded up 11 spots to get Troy. So it depends on the person. It depends on the position. Um, uh, to me, if you do that, it depends on what you're giving up. Um, you know, how many draft picks are you giving up? Um, obviously, you're giving up your one, but are you giving up a one next year? Mm-hmm. Are you giving up your two this year? I don't think they can afford to do that. They've got big problems on the offensive line. They got big problems on the defensive line. They have a big problem inside linebacker. They have a big problem at wide receiver. Uh, now, if they think, for example, by trading up depending on how many spots, that that's Patrick Mahomes there, then by all means. But anything less than that, um, I'm waiting a year on my quarterback. It's, I think it's a better bet to just spend money on a guy like Trubisky, Winston, somebody like that, than it is to give up draft capital when you have really important needs at the positions I've just named. Mm-hmm. So then looking at some of those other positions, especially on the defensive line, Stephon Tuitt, a name that immediately comes to mind, and it's really unsure at this point what his football plans are for next season. Has anything emerged one way or the other as to an indication of whether or not he plans to come back and play or if he's leaning more towards retirement? Nothing definitive, nothing Mm -hmm. concrete. Um... I was talking with Ray Fittipaldo today on my show, uh, who covers the Steelers of the Post-Gazette. He seems to think that, based on what he's, and he hasn't gotten any direct contact, that Tuit is leaning towards retirement. Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. What Tuit does in the next couple of weeks, the free agency begins March 16th. 
what he does and what decision he makes will greatly influence what the Steelers do in the draft or in free agency. If Tewitt comes back, and by the way, even missing all last year, he's in terms of his physical availability, he's not been terribly reliable. I mean, in, in the years he's been with the Steelers, he's missed over 25% of the games. I mean, that's, you know, not acceptable. You know, people get hurt. Uh, but um, th- th- you can't rely on that. So what Tewitt decides to do if he comes back, maybe now you look for a defensive end in the second round instead of the first. If he doesn't come back, maybe now defensive end is your top priority. Uh, so as I said, it and what happens in free agency will greatly determine what they do in free agency and what that effect that will have, a domino effect on the draft. We're talking here with ESPN radio host Stan Saverin. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, the wide receiver position, the linebacker position. The Steelers are going to have a lot of cap space going into free agency, something that's really a bit of a rarity for them as they're typically right up against the salary cap every year. Is there one position in particular that you mentioned that stands out more so than the others as something that absolutely has to be addressed? Well, I think it would have to be defensive line. Mm -hmm. Um, Cam Hayward is just great, but he's also going to be 33 in May. Uh, we talked about Tua. Mm-hmm. Isolulu is going to be 35 shortly. Uh, and the backups, that's all they are. They're just backups. I mean, they may have found, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, uh, some backups and, you know, louder milk. And, you know, guys who can play, but they haven't shown that they're going to be dominant players. Uh, I mean, I think that that's an absolute must. Um, and so much rides on if Devin Bush bad year, and it was a bad year, is related to his knee, or is he just not suited to play in the NFL? Um, you know, it's one thing to play against Northwestern. It's another thing to play against the Chiefs. Uh, and the jury's still out on him. Uh, and, and, you know, they may have an issue on the corner. Akello Weatherspoon is an unrestricted free agent. Joe Hayden, unrestricted free agent, makes a lot of money. I mean, these are they're, they're all issues. And if the offense is going to continue to struggle, which I expect to a degree it will, then you need a strong defense. Right now, their defense is not strong. Look at how many points they've given up in the playoffs. Now, part of that's the offense. Um, and then we get to the wide receivers. Um, can anybody reliably say that Chase Claypool uh, is anything but reliable? Um, I was a big Deontay Johnson guy, but you just can't have those drops. And they crept back into his game. James Washington is going to be gone. No big loss, but he's going to be gone. I mean, he's Ray Ray McLeod a third wide receiver. He's barely an NFL player. So, I mean, these are all, to me, um, if we're talking about building a contender, these are all significant areas that they have to address, and I don't think they can address them all in one offseason. Now, looking at the defense, you know, you talked about needing to have a strong defense, and from a coaching perspective, they made an acquisition to strengthen that, bringing in Brian Flores, despite his ongoing lawsuits against the three teams, the Broncos, the Giants, the Dolphins, and the National Football League as a whole. Was this more so a move from what you're hearing to just scoop him up before any team could possibly think about doing just that? Or is there an opportunity, a legitimate opportunity, for Flores to work his way up through the coaching ranks here with the Steelers? Oh, I think that um, all those things are possible. And 
coaching ranks uh, around the NFL. I mean, eventually the lawsuit um, is, is going to be settled. Um, uh, they blackballed Colin Kaepernick. I think they'd be more reluctant to do that uh, with Brian Flores. Uh, uh, the day, well, first of all, the day that Flores was fired, I, like most observers, I was shocked. Mm. I mean, he did a great job with that team. I mean, you know, remember, remember what they were like when he took them over. Yeah. Uh, he won seven straight games. Um, he was, you know, within shouting distance um, of the playoffs. His defense really shot up the ranks. Um, he absolutely tortured Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. Um, and when he got fired, it just didn't make any sense. And then, of course, in the following days, we found out what was going on. Um, the day that he filed the lawsuit, I said on my show, the Steelers should snap him up immediately. And at that time, they hadn't fully promoted Terrell Austin. I wanted Flores to be the defensive coordinator. Uh, all right, so they promised it to Austin. But hiring this guy, he is a tremendous defensive mind. Keep in mind, he was the defensive coordinator with Bill Belichick and won a Super Bowl with the Patriots. And there's no better defensive mind in the NFL, probably in the history of the NFL, than Belichick. This guy has had great defense wherever he's been. Uh, people rave about him. And when he became available, I said right then and there, this is a guy you got to get. Make your team better. Make your coaching staff better. And yes, yes, because he was coming to the Steelers and the Roonies, it made even more sense. I mean, Art Rooney has not been happy with the way the rest of the league has, forget about hiring, even interviewed uh, uh, minorities. And this was his chance to make a real statement. I don't think that was a driving force, but I do think it was frosting on the cake for the Steelers organization. And frankly, not that they're worried about looking good, but this year it does make them look good. So then you mentioned Terrell Austin in that with being promoted to defensive coordinator. And one of the titles that Flores has is senior defensive assistant. Is there any possibility that if, you know, early on in the season, the Steelers defense starts to struggle that Flores could take over defensive play calling maybe in week four or week five? No. <laughs> if that were to happen, it would be Terrell Austin. Um, because if you were going to pass those duties along to Flores, then you might as well fire Terrell Austin, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, no, that that's not going to happen. And I don't, I don't know if Tomlin's going to relinquish uh, that, you know, so quickly. I think he should, frankly. Um, but it's not only about calling the plays on game day; it's developing a game plan for every single game. I think people uh, under the misconception that the only way to judge a coordinator, or any assistant coach, mm -hmm. uh, that you just judge them by the players they coach individually. And, of course, that's an important component of it. But what you don't know is, and I've seen this firsthand, um, those guys, they might coach linebackers, they both, uh, might coach offensive linemen uh, individually and technique and so forth. But their primary job is not only to get their individual players better and teach them technique, but also to develop a game plan for the upcoming opponent. You know, they watch as much film as the coordinators do. So let's say Brian Flores is coaching linebackers, and he's watching tape of the Ravens. And he said, now last week uh, against Kansas City, we defended this kind of play this way. But against Baltimore, here's what they do. We're going to change up, and this is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And they submit that to the coordinator, and the coordinator submits it to Tomlin, and they collaborate. A guy could be a great individual coach in terms of technique, but he might be a total dope watching film and not mm -hmm. coming up 
with ways uh, and developing game plans. That's the one strength that Flores has. Working under Belichick, working as a coordinator, those are the things. Um, you don't just judge the individual player, you judge the unit. And then one final question here for you. You know, you talked about as well the lack of playoff success that the Steelers have had recently as they've been stuck in this rut right around 500, 8 and 8, 9 and 7, 9, 7 and 1, whatever it may be. And while everything we've discussed already certainly can change that, what else do you see needing to change within the organization from the top down? Well, I. I think that they probably, like Kevin Colbert said, maybe need a fresh set of eyes. That's why another reason why I'm glad they're bringing in Flores. It's, uh, it's I'm glad they're bringing in an offensive line coach from Carolina. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, it, with best intentions, you get stale. Um, mm-hmm. you, you sort of don't recognize you may be falling into certain patterns. Uh, for example, I know that the Steelers didn't play the Dolphins last year, but you know, maybe Brian Flores said, you know, uh, or any coach on the outside comes in and says, you know, when we played you guys last year, two years ago, here's where you were vulnerable. Maybe you didn't see it, but we as your opponent then did, and you correct that. Uh, so all those things come into play. Uh, and so I think they need a, a fresh approach. Um, not, you don't throw everything out. Look, they've been very successful, too. Uh, and, and, you know, and Kevin Colbert's been very successful, but maybe a fresh idea or two. But the bottom line, Drew, is they're just not good enough. You can talk all you want about schemes, about game plans. You win or lose with players primarily. And they just do not have enough good players. And that's not to shame them because every team goes through this. It's their turn in the barrel. You're going to have a lot of success, not as much in the playoffs as they could have had, but, I mean, they've been a winning team. They won the division 12-4 and the year before last, even last year. Uh, you know, they managed to squeak out a playoff year. Uh, but eventually... You're going to start seeing retirements, which we did with the offensive line last year. You get old. Um, you know, uh, things change. Mm-hmm. And th- th- there's no shame in that. It's the way the system is built. And that's why the draft helps you replenish. The only shame is how long do you stay in that trough? The Steelers have had losing season before. Uh, Bill Cower, 98, 99, 2000, didn't make the playoffs. And I remember people wanted him fired. They wanted Bill Cower, Hall of Famer, fired. But they rebounded in 2001 and eventually won the Super Bowl. Um, uh, you know, th- that's the way it works. So I-, I just think it's their turn in that trough. And now what they do in free agency and especially in the draft will determine how long they stay sort of in that mediocre range. All right, that, I think that's going to wrap things up. Stan, thank you so much for your time once again. I really appreciate your flexibility and hope to have you back on soon. Great. I appreciate mm-hmm. you having me, Drew. Thank you. Thank you. There you have it. Stan Saverin, ESPN radio host. You've also seen him on intermission shows, pregame, postgame for the Penguins and the Pirates. We're going to step aside here briefly on the Three Rivers Talk Show. And when we come back, the latest with the Pittsburgh Penguins as they continue to make their playoff push right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Penguins looking at the last pair of games for them as Tristan Jari was the hero for the Penguins Saturday afternoon against the New York Rangers. They won that game by a score of 1-0. to zero. It was a third-period goal on the power play from Evgeny Malkin that made the difference. Tristan Jari in the shutout saving all 38 shots, 27 rather, couldn't do math there for a quick second, 27 shots faced, 27 saved by Jory, and again, he was the difference maker. Now, there have been several games, even as of late before that Rangers game, for instance, the Devils game Thursday night, the Hurricanes game last Sunday, even that game up in Toronto that I talked to about with Michelle Cricciolo and as well with that Carolina game. These pa- those past three games, Tristan Jolly played well, but he was also human in those games. And he made, you know, maybe a mistake here and, t- here and there. Let in a goal or two that shouldn't have gone by him. But Every player is going to have those moments where they have the human element of their game show. And Saturday, we saw a totally different Tristan Jari after being pulled Thursday against the Devils. I credit Mike Sullivan for going right back to him. Of course, the back-to-back made things a little bit more complex. But Tristan Jari went out there and stood on his head to win that game for the Pittsburgh Penguins. And especially in the first period when the Penguins were outshot 11 to 6 I believe in that first period 12 to 6 as a matter of fact so even that is something to keep in mind now the second period and the third period the Penguins went ahead in terms of shots on goal 9 to 5 in the second, 11 to 10 in the third. But when the Penguins got outshot that badly in the first period, the Penguins they were lucky that it was 0-0 entering the first intermission. I mean, that game easily could have been 2-3-0 Rangers at the end of 20 minutes and it wouldn't have been Tristan Jari's fault. I mean, the Penguins they just they have this problem as of late where they start out extremely slow. They do not really wake up until the first intermission when they get into the locker room and they got, they have Mike Sullivan chirping in their ear. And then the second 40 minutes, they go out there and they play strong in the second period and the third period. And they find a way to get the job done. But as I said in past shows, this method of trying to play from behind is not going to be one that they will they will be successful with in the playoffs. And they had it happen to them again yesterday afternoon against Columbus. The Blue Jackets scored the first goal 4 minutes 43 seconds into the first period. Ruido ties it up with 49 seconds to play in the first. Second period, Blue Jackets take the lead once again about halfway through. And then you get to the third, and the Penguins 
have to find a way to come back from behind. They do, thanks to goals off the sticks of Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin. Malkin with the second, Crosby with the game winner. But especially against a team like the Blue Jackets, who is so much further down the standings than the Penguins are, it should not have taken a goal with five minutes to play in the third period or seven minutes to play in the third period to be that deciding game winner. I think it's something that the Penguins need to really focus on. Of course, that in part deals with figuring out the middle six in terms of not necessarily always having to play from behind, but something absolutely has to be done with this Penguins team. Find a way to start strong, start from the first face-off, go out there and really do what you need to do. I mean, it's honestly embarrassing how the Penguins have started out so poorly over such a large stretch of games. I mean, if you really think about it, this stretch for the Penguins, it honestly dates back to the 5-4 overtime win against the Philadelphia Flyers. And while the Penguins, they had a 2-1 lead at the end of the first intermission, the Flyers came back and scored three in the second. So there's still that portion of the game where the Penguins are not on their A game. And then it turns into the 4-1 beating in Toronto, where the Penguins really didn't show much of anything. And then the Sunday game against Carolina, where they went behind early, tried to come back in the second, and then the third period, they lollygagged again. And then here we are with the Devils, the Rangers, and the Blue Jackets. And of course, the Penguins took four points out of those Rangers and Blue Jackets games. But it's still not an ideal recipe for success. When the playoffs roll around, if the Penguins try to win every game from behind, then they are not going to go far again. And I can guarantee you that if you talked to anybody on the Penguins team, player, coach, front office member, etc., they're going to tell you that they're obviously not happy with how they play early on in games, but also the fact that they aren't trying to always come from behind and it just they're going to say that it takes time for them to really adjust it's going to take time for them to get the wheels going but again the problem is is that that just cannot continue to happen you've got to find a way to be strong all 60 minutes play from start to end and get the job done and as of late like i said the penguins they haven't done that and it's only going to get tougher from here, I mean, their next five to seven games are against playoff teams. They've got Tampa Bay Thursday night. The day after, they've got Carolina. First of all, I don't know what Mike Sullivan is going to do with that in terms of goaltending because typically in a back-to-back, it's an A team and a B team in terms of one being better than the other, and the B team is whenever you play your backup goaltender, that being Casey DeSmith. But this is a 1A and a 1B situation. So what Mike Sullivan will do then, time will tell. But then after that, you've got Florida, you've got Vegas, Carolina again, Nashville, and St. Louis. All of those games are huge for the Penguins. They're not going to be easy by any means. I mean, you look at the West, 
St. Louis, second in the Central Division right now, 70 points. For the record, the Penguins have 74. Nashville, 64 points. They're the first wildcard spot in the West. So while, yes, they are 10 points behind the Penguins, they're not a write-off. They're not somebody that the Penguins are going to play, and it's 100% known that the Penguins are going to come out on top of that game, especially when it's in Nashville. The Predators and their fans probably still have nothing but hatred in their blood for the Penguins from the 2017 Stanley Cup Final, so it's not going to be easy. And the Predators have a strong goaltender in UC Soros. All of these teams have strong goaltenders. Of course, Tampa Bay, Andre Vasilevsky, Carolina, Freddie Anderson, Florida. They've got Sergei Bobrovsky, who has done fairly well this season. And then Vegas, Robin Leonard. Carolina again with Freddie Anderson, Nashville Soros, and then St. Louis, Jordan Bennington. And of course, the Penguins aren't going to have strong goaltending from Tristan Jari. But that's really going to be a stretch where they have to ride Tristan Jolly for as much as possible because Casey Smith is not going to get the job done for them in any of those games, which is why I'm worried about that back-to-back because if the Penguins don't win the game that Tristan Jolly plays in, how are they going to do in the game that Casey Smith plays in? Not that they play better for Jolly than they do to Smith, but Jolly is the one who is certainly more capable of carrying the team on his back and route to a win. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Thank you all for tuning in on this Monday afternoon, sticking around through the technical difficulties, and be sure to tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Have a great day, everyone.